Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in New York City with Alex Cornicelli, who's laughing at me because she's never heard my radio voice before, I guess. I love it. But it's very sultry. Alex is. That's that's why I'm doing this. Somebody liked my voice and they said you should do this. Um, I agree. But Alex is an amazing chef at Butter here in New York City. Mm-hmm. She's also, a lot of folks know her from TV, Chopped, and Next Iron Chef. Um, and she's got a book coming out. I do. September 26th. I'm the really, home cook. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I, I know think. everybody says it. I'm excited. What are you supposed to say? I'm not excited about the book I wrote. <laughs> right. Well, you should be. And by the time folks listen to this, it'll already be out. And Hal Wexler from the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, uh, working in schools, making such an enormous difference in our kids' health and their lives. And that's what we like to talk about on Add Passion and Stir. We always have a chef or somebody from the food world who comes on and talks about food, but we think food connects to so many other things we care about, health, the ability of kids to get educated, ultimately our economic uh, competitiveness. And uh, you two are kind of a perfect mix. And Howell in particular, uh, you've got some expertise on the issue of obesity and it's very interesting at Share Our Strength because we're an anti-hunger organization, but we know that something like one out of three kids in the United States struggles with obesity, so we're going to want to talk about that as well, but thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Billy. Uh, Alex, I want to start with you. You've been about food your entire life. Before I knew you, I knew your mom, who was a is a cookbook editor, really yes. famous, Maria Gornicelli, famous cookbook editor. I didn't know that she was actually uh, the editor of The Joy of Cooking. Is that correct? Or an, an editor of The Joy of Cooking? My mother um, did the 1997 revision of The Joy of Cooking single-handedly um, by curating a lot of different writers to do each chapter in the field of their expertise, which meant juggling about 50 you know, brain surgeons to get it you know, yeah, all in I'll concert. Bet. Yeah, I knew her when she was editing fiction for a senator mm-hmm. that I worked with, Gary Hart from oh, yeah. Colorado. This oh, was yeah. many, many years ago. Um, but I, that's, that's how I got to know her before I ever knew anything about cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got this incredible food pedigree, uh, in terms of your training, Larry Forgione, and then France working in Burgundy, then coming back to LA. Patina, tell, tell us, I mean, it, was it as natural a progression as I've kind of just implied or yeah. how did it happen? Yeah. I mean, my parents are real academics. I'm an only child. So my father's a, you know, my parents met while they were both getting a PhD at Yale, University, which is, to my mind, really nauseating. And then to boot, they went on a date uh, to Pepe's Pizzeria in New Haven, and (laughs) notice how I fit food in there, and then got married at Yale. And so they're just nauseating academics that geeked out over the same books, so to speak. And then I think I thought, you know, that stuff is definitely skipping a generation. I better get into the manual aspect of something. Um, But what did stay with me, which I think is important, is the concept of expertise. And I wanted to be an expert in something. And my mother said, you know, just pick something and be that. And I thought, you know, that kind of that kind of sounds like a plan. And does your expertise come from technical skill or from instinct and passion or a blend of both? Or how do you think about the, you know, what makes you an expert? That's a great question. You know, I'm going to say you have to add passion and stir. Thank you. To get the answer. That's true. Um, I would say I was always interested in the physical, physical aspect of cooking and the athletic nature of cooking. Um, I think that people... F- forget that it's manual labor and repetition. We're all into the romance of adding rosemary and 
chrysanthemum flowers to our, you know, winter stew. But the question is, are we realizing that people that work in restaurants who work in this field in any capacity um, are going to do the same thing over and over again, day in and day out? And I mean, I think we forget that. People say to me, oh, I sit at my desk and work long hours and then I go home and my recreation is cooking. And I'm thinking, reverse (laughs) that. As Willy Wonka says, scratch that, reverse it. And you have what I do. So Whenever we go to a restaurant with an open kitchen or if I know the chef and I can go to the back, I always take my 12-year-old son to say, "This look how hard these folks are working. I mean, right. this is heavy, physical, you know, grueling work. And to do it for hours on your feet, never sit down. Yes. Really. It's pretty amazing. Um, Hal Wexler, uh, you're, I don't know if you started out thinking about food, but food has certainly become an important part of your work at the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. One thing I know about you, if I'm correct, is you started out doing Peace Corps. That's right. Uh, which uh, is a, a great predictor of success in the share of strength world. We have a number of returned Peace Corps. I couldn't admire mm-hmm. them more. Just, you know, incredible. You were in Zaire? Zaire, now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's actually there where I found my calling. I was originally a newspaper reporter and knew nothing about public health. Uh, and then as the story goes, I, I got into the field of public health to win a case of beer. Yes. All right. <laughs> yeah, I uh, well, as a college student, I had no interest in beer. I just didn't like the taste of it. I go over to Central Africa. The beer is exquisite. But I'm a Peace Corps volunteer. I have a my salary enables me to buy maybe one beer a week. So I'm in the middle of my second year there, and I'm on the road that leads to the cemetery in this little town where I was serving. And the tradition there was when people die, the family rents an open air truck, and all the mourners stand side by side, and they sing hymns as uh, the truck passes by uh, on its way to the cemetery, and you can see the coffins in the back of the truck. And in the middle of my second year was the dry season, and every single day, three, four, five tiny coffins. They were either infants or toddlers. I didn't know what, what, what was killing them. So I went to a Belgian nurse who was running a, a clinic that was set up by uh, the Catholic Church there. And I said, what's going on? What's killing these kids? He said, measles. Mm. I said, what? Isn't there vaccines? Why aren't we giving these kids vaccines? He said, come with me. He took me to the cold room. They had freezer upon three freezer with thousands of doses of vaccine. And I said, why aren't the kids getting the vaccines? And he said the words that really changed my life and and disgusted me through my entire body. He said, these people are too stupid to get their kids vaccinated. Mm. And I looked at him and I said, "That's, that's not right. I, I, I got so many friends in this community. They love their kids just like right. anyone else. Uh, I, I think I can get some of these people to come into the clinic. He said, how many? I said, I don't know, maybe 100. He looked at me and he said the words that led to my finding my place, uh, my calling. He said, if you bring in 100 kids, I'll give you a case of beer. Wow. So I had to invent. I had no idea what I was doing. There was no newspaper, no radio, no television in this town. It was so, all word of mouth. So this became your your focus as a Peace Corps volunteer? Uh, in addition to the teaching. I was, I was teaching a high school uh, teaching teacher. That was my, yeah, yeah, teaching English and foreign language. That was my gig. Uh, and so I, I started going around town. I created a presentation. We did skits. How old were you at the time? 23. That's mm. why I love 23-year-olds. So right. every every social gathering you can imagine, I just latched onto it. We did this skit. We did this presentation. And it became the talk of the town. So in this county, there must have been about 10,000 kids who should have been vaccinated every year. I looked at the records. The prior year, they'd vaccinated 419 kids. We did two special days of vaccination. We vaccinated over 2,400 kids. Oh, my God. Wow. I had that experience. It's like, 
There's nothing else I can do. Sorry, New York Times. I'm not going to be your editor someday. I, I, I had to... I had to do this for the rest of my life. And when I came back to the United States, I then added a year where I just did public health work. When I came back to the United States, I looked at, I, I just love children. Uh, I wound up uh, having five kids uh, of my own uh, and, and I wanted to do what I could to, to make them healthy as possible and as successful as possible. And that led me to nutrition and to this terrible epidemic uh, of, of obesity, because I felt and still feel to this day that is the single most important thing we can do to, to help our kids lead successful lives. And then you went uh, and ultimately became part of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, which is kind of the nation's premier yeah. focal point for this type of work. You were there how long and in what capacity? 18 years. In the last nine, I was the director of the Division of Adolescent and School Health, which I was essentially their lead scientist and spokesperson on child and adolescent health. And because I started there, just when the obesity epidemic started to become well known, uh, that became uh, an area of expertise. And I was one of their, their lead scientists on that. So Alex, I've up until this conversation, I've always thought you and I were making a big difference in the lives of kids. But when I yeah, hear I'm actually going to leave. Howell's done. No, I'm thinking, you don't mind. I'm thinking of walk, <laughs> walking out with you. No, that's, I mean, that's really, that's such a powerful story, both about, you know, the misperceptions that people have, mm -hmm. but the ability that each of us have yeah. to say, no, I think I can change that against really formidable odds. And Alex, I know you're involved in lots of efforts. You've been central yeah. to share strengths work here in New York City in the No Kid Hungry campaign. Every single time we've asked you to, you um. know, participate in some type of an event. You've done that. You've raised a lot of money for us. I think also City Harvest, also Wellness in Schools, which is very tied to yeah. House Works. How do you think about as a chef, you've got a platform. You, you're a, not just a chef, you're a TV personality. A lot of people probably know you more for TV than for chef. How do you think about using that platform to make a difference in the lives of kids? I mean, I have a 10-year-old who struggles with obesity. Mm. And I work a lot with Alex's Lemonade Stand, which obviously works to, as they say, end childhood cancer. So I like this concept of working with organizations that have the word end mm -hmm. in their mission statement. That that speaks to me. I want something concrete for it, but I don't I do not do what you do. I mean, believe me. I sort of think as a, of a chef as some form of social worker, really, quite mm -hmm. honestly, for the people that I work with, the people whose lives I've changed working with them, and they've changed mine. You know, and people I would have never otherwise met. So that case of beer concept to me, I think, has a lot to do with relationships you haphazardly find yourself in, and then there's just this transitional moment in your life. And it's, it, you know, I like the way you, you pin it all on a case of beer. Um, I've had a few moments like that, and I think for me, it's just the idea that there isn't any reason why a child should lose the right to become an adult. And that's just kind of the concept I go with. Um, as far as food goes, it's a, it's a very powerful thing, food. Getting it, buying it, knowing what to get, how to use it, when and how to eat it. Whew. There are a lot of things that go into every bite of food that we do and don't take. So that's kind of what interests me. But, I mean, you're, you're getting people to, to, to not die of diseases that are preventable. I am cooking chicken breasts. I'm not sure... I'm not sure I'm measuring up. But no, you, you but have a. <laughs> she has a platform. You have a platform, and, and you, you get are asked. using it. So many don't. Can, yeah. The majority don't. Mm. And I'm but definitely. I'm guessing we wouldn't even have time to talk about the number of things you get asked to, to do, 
right? I mean, you're such a focal point. A lot of chefs in restaurants are you're 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 yeah. an anchor in the community, and so people come right. to you with every cause you can imagine. How you select and choose. I mean, we've talked about three or four of them that you're involved in. Kids. But that's that's got to be hard. It's got it's kids focused. Food, kids, cancer. I've decided that's where mom is going to live for now. I also found you know initially the first few years. I think when you're younger, I'm going to do every you know. I'm going to do every single event, and I'm going to just be a philanthropist. And I remember turning to somebody and saying, which event is this? One night I was serving at a charity event, and I said, which one is this? And I thought, I don't even, you know, i got to get it together and do something. So I picked a couple, really, and decided hopefully to have an impact and, and have found more so than before. So that's my goal is, yeah, to try to have an impact in a way that you have. If we had more celebrity chefs doing this it'd be tremendous it would have an amazing impact Hmm. well and i'm sure i mean i know some of the colleagues you work with but there's a a group of you that i think really do inspire a lot of other uh, you know people coming up in the industry to get involved some of them are at cooking school culinary institute johnson wales and they look at alex they look at danny meyer they look at seamus mullen whoever and they think yeah i want to that's the kind of you know business person i want to be i'll talk about how you made the transition from Center for Disease Control to Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which was started both by the American Heart Association and the Clinton Foundation. Is that correct? Yeah, it started after President Clinton had his open heart surgery, uh, which was in 2004. And it was a huge story. He was only 58 years old, and he had multiple bypass uh, surgery. Uh, it was a big media story. And once it After calmed, he was out of office. This yeah, was yeah. You know, a number of years after. And once it calmed down, uh, uh, the president of the American Heart Association called him up. Uh, when it was clear that he was going to be okay. And the uh, president of the Heart Association said, Mr. President, you got so much attention for this. Can we parlay that into doing something good and really raising awareness about cardiovascular health? And President Clinton said, and I'm not going to try the Arkansas accent, but he said, uh, uh, what, uh, what's the biggest single problem, the greatest challenge that you face? And the Heart Association said, child obesity. President Clinton said, we're going to do something about that. We're going to do our best to end it, to, to reverse that. And so they created this organization, and it's become the, the leading evidence-based provider of child obesity prevention programs in the nation's schools and after-school programs. Uh, and for me, it was an easy transition to make, because at CDC, I was, I was this scientist guy, and I would write, I would review all the scientific evidence and identify what the evidence shows are the best practices, the practices that schools and community organizations and families can implement that are really going to make a difference. And I'd put it out to the universe, and hopefully someone would actually implement it. This was the organization, more than any other organization, that was uh, implementing the, the evidence-based best practices coming out of the CDC. So it was an easy jump for me four and a half years ago to, to lead this amazing organization. So how should we think about obesity in this country. It comes up all the time at Share Our Strength. Sometimes it comes up because as we're trying to persuade people that hunger is an important issue, which it is, sometimes the rebuttal is, and, and it's, it doesn't really make sense because they could obviously both exist and they do, um, but you know, there's so much obesity. Why, you know, how can there be hunger when there's so much obesity? You know, I'm interested. You two see it from almost different ends of the telescope. You see it in a restaurant where some of your customers are probably healthy and some of them are probably not. And I'm curious about, you know, what sense of uh, what you feel like your role is in that, Alex. Um, and you see it at a macro level. But how do you think about it as a as a chef? And, you know, I'm sure you try to cook in ways that are good for people. But I mean, my restaurant's called Butter. And people say to me, oh, I don't, I don't really want to eat a lot of butter. I'm not going to go, go there. 
And I say, you know, it's ironic, but with every passing year that I cook, I probably cook with less and less butter. Not that it's bad, but I'm saying Mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, I've recently said in the past few years, part of an experience in a restaurant is, is digestion. You know, you go home and you feel nauseous or sick or stuffed or whatever. Uh, hey, honey, let's go back to that place that made me feel nauseous and stuffed and sick. No. So you get more repeat business when people leave your restaurant feeling good. Now, I'm not talking about just having a meal of hemp hearts and tofu and, and, and no fun, okay? All work and no play is not the way. But there's something really to um, the quality of the ingredients you serve, the way you cook them. Um, you can educate people simply by giving them a plate of food that they love and are surprised they love. Tell me about, let's just go back to the very basics of obesity in this country. Yeah. Why is it such, it's almost an epidemic, really, and adolescent childhood obesity, we were talking earlier, something like one in three kids, you know, I think is, you know, considered to be dealing with obesity. Why so? One in three kids is either obese or overweight. Uh, it's about half and half. Uh, so it's about 16 to 18% that, that are actually obese. Uh, it really s- took off in 1980. Uh, they started collecting great data in the early 1960s. And for 20 years, 5% of kids didn't grow, uh, was stable. And then since the 80s, it just took off. Now, the good news is that in the last seven or eight years, it's stabilized. So it's not really going up uh, anymore. But we had 30 straight years where it went up steadily from about 5% to about uh, 18%. Uh, and that's a disaster for, for our country. Uh, so many kids uh, have to deal with the stigma, uh, but uh, even more profoundly, uh, they're much more likely to uh, deal with chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes at a, at a very young age. Uh, you know, they used to call that adult onset diabetes. They had, to, they had to throw out the medical textbooks. Right. You can't call it that anymore because so many pediatricians are now seeing nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds developing type 2 diabetes. And the, the health care costs, we, we're going to bankrupt ourselves as a nation. We can't deal with this. So we what, have to turn it around. But what's behind this growth in the... In oh, the, food and inactivity. Uh, and potentially uh, other factors as well. Uh, one interesting factor might be sleep. Sleep patterns have changed. Kids are getting less sleep. They're distracted by electronic uh, gadgets at night, and sleep is associated with it as well. But most most profoundly, uh, kids are eating much worse than kids used to eat, and they're getting a lot less activity. I, I put a lot of my hope in, the, in kind of the generation of your daughter, my son. My son's 12. He made me stop drinking diet soda, all soda, um, three years ago. It was a New Year's resolution that he made me take, and I haven't had one since. But he had a sense, much more clear and palpable than I did, that that's bad for you, Dad. You know, mm-hmm. and I just like, okay, I hear you. So, and it's just like you know, it's like you could never get away with littering or anything like that in front of your kids, Seat right? Belts. They're very, very. Conscious of it, so I, I was. What were you going to say, Hal? I just said seat belts is another seat belts, example yeah. where the, the children oh, leave. Can't move the car unless, yeah, right? right? Yeah. How? What do you do to both for yourself, for your own just personal um, uh, satisfaction that you're making an impact, and for, and because of all your stakeholders, how do you measure the the results that the Alliance for Healthier Generation is is getting? Well, we're in a pretty decent shape now because thanks to the leadership of people like Michelle Obama, we have strong federal school nutrition standards. And so one of our underlying key metrics is, are we getting the schools to implement them? Are they actually meeting the, the school nutrition standards? Uh, that, that's really key. And then can we look at plate waste? Are the kids, is it palatable uh, for the kids? 
So those are some of the the, the most uh, important measures. We actually have a, an award system uh, where we list out all of the the evidence based best practices that CDC has identified, and if schools reach a certain level of them then they get a bronze award from us. And if they reach a bunch more, they get a silver award. And if they reach a bunch more, they, they get a gold award. Uh, and, and, and we can see how many schools uh, are doing that and meeting those criteria. I know that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, again, this goes back to the social aspect of food, the idea that you validate schools socially and that they could hang a plaque and mm-hmm. have a source of yeah. pride or a trophy. It sounds hokey, but I'm a big fan they yep. fall for it every time. They yeah. love it. They're so proud. It's a great thing because it's a measurement that yeah. you – it's tangible. It's not just, okay, great. Then I'm glad we got everybody to eat sunflower seeds last week. Who cares? But then you hang a plaque. What is it? It's just a plaque. Yeah. It's, 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 it actually goes into all the competition cooking I do on television. Right. Think about that. And yep. winning. You know, and people say to me, well, geez, you know. I had a really famous friend of mine. I mean – Famous, famous. He said to me, you know, I, I'm on a set of a movie and I'm, I'm in my trailer and I watch Food Network. He said, you know, you've been losing a lot lately on those shows. Are you okay? And I thought, and I said, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I, I, can't, I can't win all the time. You know, it's, it's part of my whole how to be a hero act. You know, I, I rise from the ashes. I said it sort of in a glib way, but I meant it. I think when you think you've got nothing and then you hang this plaque on yeah. the wall I don't know. Again, this all goes back to this social aspect of food and cooking mm-hmm. and education that I'm obsessed with. I'm, I'm sort of thinking that the celery and the and the sunchokes and everything is going to fall into place once we understand the power of social messaging. I really do. Oh, you're onto something there. We and we we give them great big banners actually that they yeah. hang in their gymnasiums, and it says one of America's healthiest schools. Come they on, love it. it's a it's great very powerful. Word. That's right. You had mentioned earlier uh, Michelle Obama's role in this, and I know in our anti-hunger work uh, with the No Kid Hungry campaign, she you know, made a very big difference. But I also get the sense that she was a little bit of a double-edged sword, uh, certainly a net plus, but that there were some people who you know, were so just kind of anti the Obamas that that probably made, to some extent, work that you had to get around or issues that you had to navigate around. Absolutely. Uh, there's a strong Which feeling. seems crazy. <laughs> Yeah, you might call it that. <laughs> There's a strong feeling in many segments of, of this nation that we don't want Washington to tell us what we can feed our kids. And we don't want Michelle Obama to tell us what we can feed our kids when it's just for the betterment. It's just setting a baseline of, of, of what should be expected for every kid. It's just applying the scientific findings that, that federal research dollars have paid for. Uh, and so, yeah, we run into a lot of opposition, and there are still many members of Congress who near the top of their priority list is to reverse the strong federal school nutrition standards, which would be a disaster. Uh, it's not easy to shift the whole you know, 120,000 schools across the nation to do things in a different way. And it takes years, and we're building towards that, and it's getting better and better and better, and the overwhelming majority of schools have met the standards. There's a few squeaky wheels out there that, that moan and groan and complain, uh, and then there are opportunistic politicians who see a chance to label something uh, uh, as, as, as being Michelle Obama's dictates, and so they get on a and pedestal. And, and so it's purely it. politics for them. Uh, well, there's a philosophical sense in some quarters yeah. that the federal government shouldn't be dictating anything it's to state and locals. 
It's a social stigma. You got it. It's yep. all social. Everything is social. Mm-hmm. I say to people, being a chef is 93% social and 7% produce. That's what I always <laughs> say to people. If I could go back and just go to culinary school, I'd make my own program. It would be cooking, fundamentals for three sections, then food education, plumbing, electricity, electrician, and uh, troubleshooting. And that would be it. There'd be a class called troubleshooting, which would be anything. But um, again, it's all the perception. I had a, I worked for a very corporate restaurant group for a year and a half, and I, I resigned you know, a year and a half to the day. I, I just said, you guys are not for me. You know, love you. Hugs to the fam. But I got, I got to go. <laughs> and the guy would say to me two things that stuck with me. He said, people often get a nickname in the workplace that is an abbreviation or a variation on their actual given name, and they don't want to be called that name. He said statistically it's like 76% are called by a name they don't want to be called. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty powerful thing, right? And then the other thing he said was guest perception in a restaurant is reality. Guest perception is reality. And I thought, geez, when I go somewhere and I don't like it, it doesn't matter what's going on. I don't like it, right? So I'm just thinking, could we, like, scratch that and reverse it and make the perception the better reality and then it's real that's my fantasy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that's why i'm always talking about root vegetables they're homely root vegetables you know they come out of the ground they're covered (laughs) with dirt they're not pretty little shapes just how people buy produce pick it what they push aside so are we going to find out some of this in your new book. You have a book. No, <laughs> yeah, no seriously. I'm going on and on. But don't, no, I'm getting but out my know. hemp dress and I'm ironing it. You have got a book out called The Home Cook? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of grain, a lot of, lot, of, lot of unsexy vegetables being, you know, negligee up, so to speak. <laughs> and, and why did you decide to write the book? Well. Because it's your second? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm really, God, there's so many cookbooks out there. Um, I, I had the, the first book was really what I collected over the years in kitchens and restaurants. And then this was kind of like what I actually make for my daughter, what my mom makes, um, you know, the real stuff, stuff you can actually do with two or three pots instead of 18 saute pans and a pair of tweezers. Let's get real. You know, cooking at home for my daughter, it's another thing, you know. It's like, yeah, in the same pan you cook that thing, throw everything else in and heat it up. Let's not get too romantic here, people, or we might just order takeout, and we know where that goes. One more thing about obesity. You were talking about um, patterns, like sleep patterns and stuff. The other thing I was going to say about breakfast is eat pa- eating patterns. I mean, if you don't eat for a number of hours that you're awake and then you do eat a big meal, then you don't, then you do. There's that irregular eating that I feel like we don't talk a lot about either. Yep. Well, and that's one of the reasons why we were talking earlier about hunger and obesity. That's one of the reasons why there's such a strong connection between food insecurity and obesity. Right. It's counterintuitive, but we have to explain that to people. When you don't know where your next meal is going to come from and you don't have the resources to to purchase some of the healthier options out there, you're going to make some choices. You're going to have limited options, and that's going to feed into the cycle that leads to obesity. As we come to a close here, I want to hear what's next for each of you. And first of all, how the way people can learn more about Alliance for Healthier Generation is your website, I assume. HealthierGeneration.org. HealthierGeneration.org. Um, what's next for you? You've got an ambitious agenda ahead. Um, tell us what else is on it. Well, I'll put a plug in for a, a project we just launched last week. You see, one of, 
one of the most important things we need to do, what you have done for the school breakfast program of analyzing what are the structural and systemic barriers and then figuring out how to overcome them. In our work, one of the biggest problems is for school systems, particularly smaller and rural school systems, and then all after-school programs, early child care programs, they order a lot of food, but they don't have the trained nutritionists on staff to even figure out. It's complicated to figure out what meets the federal standards. They also don't have many resources, and they don't have access. A lot of them are small operations. They don't it, 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 it kills them to make a run to Costco uh, and, and fill up the station wagon, but they don't have the time to do that. So how do we overcome those three fundamental barriers of knowledge, cost, and, and access? Uh, and so last week, we launched a, a project called the Healthier Generation Store, uh, which is available on Amazon Business, and eventually, hopefully, we'll take it to other retailers uh, as well. Uh, and it's a way for schools and after-school programs and early child care programs to sign up uh, with a business account, and they will go to this website. The only types of foods listed are those that meet the federal nutrition standards. It takes all the guesswork out of it, so that's the big first step. If they sign up with a business account, they get great prices that they wouldn't otherwise get, and then they don't have to make that uh, run to the store anymore because Amazon's going to deliver it to them. And it's guaranteed to meet those those nutritional standards. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I definitely see healthy food more and more chic. I tell you, I you know it's not it's not cool to have a candy bar anymore. It's time for something else. Alex, I'm so unchic that when I came to Butter with my wife, <laughs> I didn't know that people went there because there were celebrities. Oh, yeah. I just knew that the food was great, and we actually had honestly we had one of the best lunches, one of the best meals of our Thank of you. our life. It's really it's an amazing restaurant, and you're an amazing chef. Um, Tell, it, tell us what else you have planned. Well, if it doesn't smell a little bit like a barn in my walk-in refrigerator, then I know something's wrong. I go in there and I, I take a nose bath to see if that layer of green market is there or not. Um, what's next? You know what, Billy? Nothing. Good. How about how you're, you like You're going to be at butter, so when we come there, we know that you're going to be cooking for us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's about that's, it. That's I got nothing. The, that's the best part. Yeah. And a cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alex Cornicelli, chef at butter and um, author of. Uh, home, the home cook, the home cook mm-hmm. coming out soon. Uh, thanks for being with us. Are you kidding? And Hal Wexler, so uh, inspired by your work at the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, and so grateful for what you're doing for our nation's kids. Thanks for thanks for being here. A pleasure, and we just love our collaboration with No Kid Hungry. Thanks. Hope it lasts forever. Likewise. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, "If your pictures are not good enough." you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.